Gresham College Presents The Dark Side of the Universe by Professor Joseph Silk. So, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be here again to give my um, next Gresham lecture and the final one of this, uh, this academic year. So, I'm going to tackle today the, uh, the dark aspects of the universe, the dark matter in the universe, really. Um, okay, so we... Uh, do have an issue here in, in our understanding of the universe. An awful lot of it we do not see. Um, now, this is a fascinating um, question, actually. Um, it's um, attracted attention in many other areas. Here's an example from, from the field of art, where um, a well-known American artist um, did a series of um, dark paintings, um, um, the, the things that vary are the frames, of course, um, but um, there's a close-up. Um, and, you know, dark matters. There you go. Um, okay, so um, let me um, take you through uh, the beginnings of this problem in our understanding of the universe. I suppose you can really um, go back to the 1920s and um, blame uh, the beginnings of cosmology, or the modern cosmology, where we, Hubble first discovered, um, with the aid of Georges Lemaitre, um, who also independently discovered this, the expansion of the universe as measured by the recession of the galaxies. And so, um, and um, with Einstein joining in the argument, it soon became clear that um, the universe was indeed, uh, space was expanding, but um, there was a countervailing force due to matter to balance this expansion to some extent. The exact extent wasn't known, but it was clear there had to be um, an awful lot of matter in the universe, otherwise... Uh, um, the expansion would make no sense. That is, the universe could not be too far away from uh, a state in which, you know, expansion was balanced by the attractive force of, of gravity from matter. Okay, and so this was sort of the motivation um, for beginning to think about matter as being dark, some of it as being dark, because it was clear that um, if you wanted to understand how rapidly the universe expands in its future... You know, if, if there was a lot of matter, it would reach a maximum size and re-collapse to a big crunch in the future. And if there was relatively little matter, then it would expand forever and ever. And so this is an important, uh, you know, issue. What is the future of the universe? And so the amount of matter became critical. And it was clear there was not enough matter that we could see directly to cause this future big crunch. And so if this did happen, it would have to be somewhat dark. Okay, so this was, you know, the 1930s. This discussion went on for, for um, 20, 30 years, uh, more actually, um, until um, probably um, it, it took to, to 1990 before we finally got modern measurements in cosmology. And, um, and it became clear um, in the over the past decade or two, that there is an awful lot of matter out there that we simply cannot see but must be there, is inferred to be there, just to explain the overall structure of the universe. And this is the budget for um, the expanding universe. Um, um, uh, this is the stuff that we're made of, the ordinary matter. We're only 5% of the universe. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Um, uh, to think that we're such an insignificant fraction. It's important, obviously, it's critical, otherwise, you know, we, our planets and stars wouldn't be here, but they're the ordinary matter. Nevertheless, um, there's five times as much dark matter, um, and there's even more dark energy, which I'm not going to talk about, because that's something um, that has its origins in, in the origin of the Big Bang, and is a whole other issue, but let's just, I'm going to focus today on, on the dark matter, which is a much more concrete thing, because this surrounds us everywhere. Um, and is inside our galaxy, it's inside um, um, in the Earth, throughout the Earth, everywhere, there is dark matter, we think. Um, and to give you some feeling um, for the first place to look for dark matter, because it's clear that um, 
the stuff that we see shining, the galaxies, is not enough to uh, explain the global mass budget of the universe. There is more that's needed. And so the first obvious place to put this extra matter is in this dark and invisible halo about, um, about our galaxy. And so this, there are occasional stars spotted through this, but you'll notice the density of stars in the centre is very, is very intense. But out here, um, most of the matter, 90% of the mass of our galaxy, is um, um, thought to be invisible. Okay, so th this is a presumption, and this is what we uh, most likely need to understand the global budget of the universe. But what I want to talk about today is how we measure this. Why are we so certain this stuff is out there? And what are we doing to try and actually detect it directly? Okay, that's the issue. Of, until we actually find it, we're never going to be totally convinced that it's real. Okay, so um, let me then tell you um, how one can try to measure this dark matter, the stuff that is around our Milky Way, where much of it must, must be if it exists at all. Okay, and we conjecture that it does exist. And so this is what you do. Um, this is almost the only equation I'm going to show you today, but just to give you some feeling for this, you measure a galaxy um, full of stars like the Milky Way. It's, it's spinning, it's rotating. And the, so the stars have some speed. And from the speed of those stars, you can infer the mass that's contained within the orbits of those stars. That's basically uh, what controls the speeds of stars, just as the speed of the Earth around, in its orbit is controlled by the mass of the sun. Okay? And the further out you go in the solar system, the slower the planets are orbiting, because the gravity field is weaker. And so that's what you would expect in the galaxy. The gravity field should get weaker. The speeds of stars should get slower the further out you go. Okay, so that's, that's the underlying essential theory that comes from understanding of gravity. Gravity determines the speeds of stars in orbits. The more gravity there is, the faster they must be going to, in orbit to, to counterbalance that gravity. The weaker the gravity, the slower they need to go. So that's sort of the story. Um, okay, um, so how do astronomers then go about um, entering this challenge um, to see if there's any dark matter out there. So it began with um, uh, these two astronomers, Vera Rubin and, and Mort Roberts, in um, the 1950s, and they did detailed studies of, um, of a nearby galaxy in, in Andromeda, one you could just barely see with, an, with the naked eyes, a very faint patch of light in the constellation of, per of um, near Perseus. Um, and this represents the speeds of the stars in orbits around the galaxy, and um, Rubin measured... The, the speeds of stars using um, uh, ordinary telescopes, and Roberts used radio telescopes to measure the, uh, the clouds of gas, which essentially can go further out than the stars and give you a much more of a grasp on, on the speeds of stars further out. And so here then is, um, is the sort of result that they found. So here is the galaxy that you see um, through, you know, when you take an image of, of the sky, okay? And you find that the um, speeds of the stars, as you move further out from the galaxy, instead of coming down like this, which is what you expect, because the gravity field should be getting weaker if all the mass is where the stars are, right? In fact, it keeps on rising and gradually levels off, okay, like this. That means there is extra matter throughout the outer part of this galaxy, which is controlling the speeds of those stars. And probably there is... Um, um, up to 10 times more than we actually see. And that was an amazing discovery for one or two nearby galaxies in the 1950s. And since then, we've gone on to um, make similar conclusions for many, many nearby galaxies. And so this shows you the speeds of stars, what we call the rotation curves, for many nearby galaxies. Each one of these lines is a galaxy. And it just, instead of coming down like this, you know, thousands of light years away from the center where the galaxy seems to end, they just keep on going, okay? Okay, so there is dark, there is dark matter out there, lots of dark matter. So what does this really mean? Um, well, um, we want to check this somehow. We want to see, you know, elsewhere, not just around our galaxy, you know, maybe there's dark matter everywhere. There should be. There's nothing special about the site where we formed. And so let me just now take you to... Um, the modern theory of gravity, Einstein's theory of gravity, and try to explain um, 
what, how you would actually really be able to make a map of dark matter. That's what's remarkable about what I'm going to tell you now. Even though it's invisible, we can actually make a map of it, and I want to show you how that's done. So what Einstein um, said, basically, in his theory of gravity, relativity, um, is that matter curves space, okay? He, you can replace matter by space being not Euclidean, slightly curved, so that if you're near... Um, a black hole, it's an extreme effect. If you're near the sun, it's a smaller effect. But nevertheless, the three angles of a triangle no longer add up to 180 degrees. As Euclid would have said, space is slightly distorted. And that's from gravity. Okay, and so you can see um, symbolically how, how this happens. Um, and, but at the same time now, light rays have to travel through this curved space. So space also curves light. So these are the two key concepts of Einstein. Matter curves space and I can replace matter by the curvature of space. But then when I try to observe something, light gets slightly bent, okay? So how do we turn this into something that we can actually go out and measure? And here is the remarkable modern discovery of how you can make maps of dark matter, even though you can't see it directly, okay? And so this is the way it goes. So here um, uh, is a distant galaxy. Here is my telescope. In this case, it's the Hubble telescope, but it could be any telescope that can see clearly. And here is, um, in this case, it's a cluster of galaxies, but full of dark matter, we, 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 we assume. I'll tell you why we know that in a moment, but we're very confident that this is full of dark matter, as well as ordinary light, but 90% of it's dark matter. So the effect of this dark matter bends space. It also bends the light rays. So the light rays that come from this galaxy pass through and would normally go like this, but they get bent by the curving of space, if you like, by the effect of the gravity, instead of coming, you know, um, and so this is the way you see part of this galaxy, okay? So some of the light doesn't get bent, comes straight through the center, but the light that goes in this direction feels all this gravity force, okay, from all the dark matter here. And so that means that when you look with this telescope at this galaxy, it's the light rays which really come from this distant galaxy seem to come from out here somewhere. So in other words, this galaxy gets turned into, a part of the light gets turned into basically, if, I, if you imagine a circle perpendicular to the screen, a ring. You'd see a ring projected on the sky. We call this Einstein's ring um, because it was essentially a prediction of his theory, if this is true. Okay, so we have now, by taking... Um, many, many images, millions of images of galaxies, we find ones that are in the right position to be behind a cloud of dark matter, and we can actually begin to see these rings, which are the manifestation of dark matter. And they tell us, in fact, precisely how much dark matter is in this region, in this case, a galaxy cluster. So before I even get on to galaxy clusters, I'm going to just tell you first about galaxies have lots of dark matter, um, a cluster is a collection of thousands of them, but let's just focus on the galaxy. So what do we, how do we study that? So here is um, uh, a modern survey um, that pioneered the way to studying um, the images and other properties of very distant galaxies. So this um, telescope, it's a two-and-a-half-meter telescope um, in New Mexico, um, funded by the Sloan Foundation, did a sky survey, and um, it was the first. Prior to that, people had used photographic techniques to, to map the sky. This is the first one to do it using modern CCDs digitally. And um, they produced a map of um, a quarter of a billion galaxies and a quarter of a billion stars of the whole sky. So this is their map. So nearly half a billion points on, on this, half of which are stars, half of which are galaxies. So we just care about the galaxies. So what you do is you sort through the images of some of these galaxies and you find some really interesting things. And most are just like the normal galaxies, the, the bread and butter of astronomy that you see typically. But I'm going to show you examples of ones that are Einstein's dream, as it were, namely direct manifestation of the Einstein lens, the Einstein ring of dark matter. So here are four examples. Um, so what you have then is... is um, this is the ordinary galaxy. Um, in, in, in front of it, there is um, some, so a cloud of dark matter. 
um, and the light from so this is this galaxy has a big has a lot of dark matter in it. So this 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 is the lens going to be the lens in these four cases, and the dark matter around this galaxy is imaging something much much more distant. So this blue ring comes from a galaxy that's probably twice as far away as this one. Okay, and you're seeing the ring. Um, of that light being spread out because we're looking at this galaxy more or less down the centre and so you, the light gets spread symmetrically around it into sort of a ring on the sky. And so here are four different examples. And it's obviously, if you don't look at the galaxy and if the galaxy behind is somewhat irregular and you don't look at it quite in the through the centre of this, then you, then you can get slightly asymmetric, you know. This is all, all of this light is from one galaxy way behind this one. Okay, and... Um, and so that's, that's basically going to tell us, tells us there's lots of dark matter. You can even infer how much. And there are some, um, and so just to remind you again, so again, this is this supposed to be this galaxy. And again, it's bending the light. And you're seeing um, the light from this galaxy now spread out into this ring, which um, because of the projection out from the screen. Okay, it looks like a ring as seen by this telescope. This, okay, so what I just showed you was the Sloan telescope, but here's a the Hubble telescope in space has much better resolution. I mean, from the ground, you know, stars twinkle and all that, the images are rather fuzzy. What you can do from space is really quite amazing. And so this is one of the examples, uh, one of the best ones, um, of a gravitational lens, okay? And so again, this comes from a distant galaxy. Here is the galaxy, the foreground one, with a halo of dark matter around it, which is lensing the light from one galaxy right behind this one, and it spreads the light out. You can't see the galaxy directly because it's too bright here, but you can see its, its lensed image, which is this. And you can actually measure this. You show this is all from one, one galaxy, you know, just one tiny... would be a tiny dot um, on the screen like this, maybe. Worry not for the fact there's a galaxy right in front of it. Okay, so, um, you know, it, uh, this is dark matter... Um, as directly um, imaged effectively, and I'll show you how we can turn this into a map in a second. But let's go back to the historical beginning of this. So in 1933, um, astronomer Fritz Vicky, um, he's the first one who proposed that there was dark matter. And he wrote this in German. He was based in Switzerland at the time before he moved to Pasadena. Das dunkle Materie. And his logic was that um, he was an expert on clusters of galaxies. They're collections of hundreds or thousands of galaxies um, in the sky. And he was able, using um, astronomy techniques, especially using the Doppler shift of light, to measure the speeds of all the different galaxies. And he realized that they would fly apart, given the measured speeds, unless there was some big cloud of dark matter, which... Um, probably had to weigh five or ten times as much as the mass in the stars that he could see in those galaxies. And so he then proposed um, dark matter um, in this paper. Um, but it was a conjecture. Um, and the conjecture stayed there for a very long time until gravitational lensing took over. And so this is the way that gravitational lensing works for this the cluster of galaxies, in fact, this is the very one that he studied in his earlier paper. So all of these galaxies, these are galaxies in this cluster. And if you look now carefully at the images of these galaxies, you find that because of... There are some very faint ones in the field that are behind this cluster. So the bright ones are in the cluster, the fainter ones are way behind. If you look at the images of the faint ones, you find they're very slightly distorted. They're like arcs. They're bits of arcs that would ordinarily be a whole ring if you looked at them exactly centre on, but you don't. So you get distortions. Okay. The promise map of dark matter. The first map we have, which is directly that of the dark matter that you can't see directly in this galaxy cluster. So... Um, that's, uh, and let me now show you a close-up of one of the clusters that does this. So here's an example of, um, of such a galaxy cluster. 
And you can see now, and all these things, these weird shapes, these arc-like shapes, are from background galaxies. There are a number of them now. Um, there's no single one that's right behind the center of the cluster. And it's complicated because each of the galaxies in this foreground cluster has its own cloud of dark matter. And all of that stuff, that the individual galaxies plus the whole cluster, are lensing the background. So nevertheless, if you look at all these, so here we have one giant arc probably. This is one, this may be one galaxy, but all these other images are slightly distorted and the, the net effect is you can make a map of the dark matter. Okay, so the cluster of galaxies has um, really, um, um, is a laboratory of dark matter, full of dark matter. Here's another example of a galaxy cluster um, where you can see, um, so this is one distant galaxy behind the cluster. Okay, so the dark matter in this entire cluster is imaging one background galaxy to give you this enormous arc, okay? And many of these other weirder things are other galaxies, but you can, so th these are all distorted galaxies by the dark matter. Here's another galaxy, arc further out, and so on. And so all of these things are testimony to dark matter. So just to give you some feeling for why this is, um, this is um, um, a simulation of a cluster of galaxies in just passing it across the background. So it's just moving through the background, okay? Um, and you can see how, you know, the galaxies right behind give you these beautiful arcs, but everything gets distorted. Everything that comes behind this cluster gets some weird distortion. So this is the, just the effect of gravity. It's a transparent lens. Gravity is bending light. That's what we're seeing, okay? That's just... Uh, um, so this is um, a great manifestation of uh, the dark side of the universe that we can't see directly, but we can see its consequences. But it doesn't stop there. So let's, here's another um, remarkable thing. Okay, so here again, I'm showing you, that here's a galaxy with, um, with dark matter, okay, um, and the light is being bent, okay, as it comes from this background object past the, the galaxy. So the light from here gets bent, okay. And so the interesting thing is that if I now imagine um, different light rays, okay, um, it turns out that um, this one galaxy, which is being lensed by this, if it's not exactly in the center, is going to give you more than one image. You see, here is the same galaxy as seen by looking in this direction. You don't know the light's being bent, so you just follow the light rays. You see an image here. And here, if you look in another direction, you also see an image there as well. So typically, this ordinarily will be part of some giant ring, okay? But because it's not exactly center on, you're seeing different images, okay? So if things are, and so the typical thing you expect is multiple images of the same object, okay? So it's, um, so things are multiplying in front of you. And we've actually measured this. So here's an example, okay, of the same object, okay? Here is a quasar, a very compact, very distant, very massive object, um, way behind this galaxy, and it's produced four different images. These are the same object. How do you know they're the same object? You take the spectrum of each of these objects, you prove it's the same. So things are multiplying in front of us. It's really, uh, the phenomenon is remarkable. And here's another um, uh, object. Again, galaxy, lots of dark matter, a quasar right behind it that you can't see directly very easily, and these are the four images, um, in this case, of this quasar, all the same object, okay? Again, proof that gravity is basically enabling you to measure dark matter. Okay, so, um, and it doesn't stop there. So here is um, one of the most amazing consequences, just, just an experiment just done last year of this same phenomenon. Um, so again, imagine now um, a galaxy back here somewhere, and here's our telescope. Um, and again, light is being bent by the gravity field in this cluster. So what I want you to notice, though, is that in this case, these different bent images have different lengths, okay? So the image that gets bent like this, okay, light will take a bit longer to get here than it does from, from this one, okay? So that means there should be a time delay, okay? So here is um, the amazing example. So in this example, they, they saw uh, an explosion, a supernova, an exploding star go off in the galaxy, which they measured in one of, you know, in, in, you know, 
directly with the telescope. They saw that happen. But because of this model, they were able to predict there should be a light path with a longer passage time. Therefore, last October, they said, well, let's look and we should expect to see the same star exploding that we already saw last year, the year before. And there it was. They found it December. Difficult to see, but they predicted there would be an explosion and they saw that explosion because they'd already seen it before. So it's as though you can predict the future. It's really amazing um, uh, because of the complexity of gravity. So um, that's, um, you know, uh, uh, the way we can now be totally confident that we live in a universe where galaxies and clusters of galaxies, the collections of galaxies, uh, have vast amounts of dark matter. Okay, so um, let's, for a moment, just go back to the roots of all of this in cosmology. Um, so in some sense, um, we can now measure dark matter throughout the universe because, you know, every time you look around a galaxy, you can sample the dark matter and you can get some feeling for where it is in, in, more generally because everywhere you look, there'll be tiny distortions. And this is a map of those distortions in some random place in the sky. Okay, um, hard to see. It's a, t it's a small effect, but we're convinced this is basically a pure dark matter map of a patch of the sky. Now, this map was produced for a universe in which there's lots of dark matter, a universe that will have so much dark matter that in the future it will eventually stop expanding and collapse again. Okay? So if I now show you another universe, this is all done on a computer, a simulation, this is a numerical simulation, um, here's a universe in which there's just one-third of this density of dark matter. That universe, in principle, would expand forever, Okay, um, then you can see the, the map is different. So by studying the details of the distortions of the galaxies, you can actually measure the future of the universe, determine the future of the universe, and decide how much dark matter there will be, apart from the minor problem of dark energy, which is another issue, but that complicates things. But nevertheless, you can tell how much dark matter there is in the universe by comparing these two maps, because it's dark matter that gives you these different distortion patterns. So this is less distorted than this. There's more dark matter on the left, Less on the right, you can sort of figure out the pattern with the aid of a computer. Okay. Okay, so we conclude that our universe looks like this. Okay, it's only one-third the critical, this so-called critical density of dark matter. That's our universe. Okay, now, now I want to move on to um, try to say some things about what is this mysterious dark matter. And so this is um, a really big challenge for... Um, astronomy and for physics because it's one thing now to show you the maps that we have we know the dark matter's there but what is it you know and we'll never be satisfied till we've identified it um so your your first assumption is that it might be just made of ordinary matter that's dark you know black holes or something whatever okay um just dark clouds you know and so that's um something that you can uh study in detail because ordinary matter Whatever form it's in does have emit light, does affect things, you know, at some level. Even black holes accrete stuff and glow, okay, whatever, okay. Um, and we can be pretty sure that the dark matter cannot be ordinary matter. We have to move to something more exotic. Um, here is one example of something more exotic. When I gave a talk in Australia um, some years ago, um, uh, this going to the newspaper, I was going to talk about the possibility the dark matter was made of ordinary stuff, baryonic dark matter, and the newspaper columnist wrote at least 90% of the mass of the university is in the form of non-luminous matter. Okay, right, so that, uh, that probably is true, actually, but it's not, <laughs> it's not the topic of this talk. Right, so anyway, um, so here is an example of um, why we're sure that dark matter is something incredibly weakly interacting. I mean, the matter that we're made of interacts, it, it glows, etc. but we think dark matter is practical, practically invisible. Very, I'll explain how we can try to see it. But, and so here's an example where you can see um, in this galaxy cluster, um, by using an X-ray telescope, they could conclude that this is where the, all the gas, the hot gas, most of the mass of the cluster is here, okay? That's, that's this cloud over here. And by using this gravitational lensing technique, okay, they discovered there was lots of dark matter over here and over here, telling you that as this probably formed by the merging of two clusters, and they obviously went through each other like, you know, like ghosts in the night, as it were, okay? and so the dark matter clouds emerged on either side, and um, the atomic matter sort of 
got compacted and compressed and lost energy and stayed in the center. So this tells you that the, the dark matter really does move like a ghost through ordinary matter. This is a direct observational uh, confirmation of the fact, apart also from the obvious thing that because the dark matter is outside where the stars are, it obviously cannot have collapsed and made the stars. But that's what we see, therefore also it must be, you know, a very, very weak interaction. So that's why we're so sure this is a graphic example of how that works. And we say that dark matter um, intrinsically must be very, very weak interacting and therefore very hard to observe with our telescopes or with any experiments. Okay. Um, so how do we go about um, um, doing this? Okay. So let me just take you through, this has been something of great interest to the physics community, and so let me just give you the physics perspective on, on the dark matter. So one um, of the most, on the underlying themes of our understanding of elementary particles, and I'll show you examples of recent discoveries in a moment, um, is that at some incredibly high energy, they were all the same. I mean... We're made of protons and electrons, big ones and lighter ones, other things too, but, and they're very different today. But in the very, very early universe, we believe that things were unified at sufficiently high energy. Now, we try to approach high energy in particle accelerators, like the Large Hadron Collider at Geneva, but we can't get nearly high enough energy to produce unification, but we believe that the very early universe that was the ideal state because there were enormous energies present naturally at the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang. Um, and so um, the universe was then very hot and then all these particles were presumably present and this theory of unification, we call it supersymmetry, SUSY for short, um, it unites everything together um, at a temperature... Um, which is enormous um, compared to the mass of a particle. Basically, you take the mass of a particle, Einstein's famous equation, mc squared, and that gives you some incredibly high temperature equivalent. And when the universe is a millionth of a second old or less, so we, we're extrapolating back to this time. And um, then if, if this theory, which we believe should be correct, no one knows for sure, we're trying to test it, but the prediction of this idea of unification is that all known particles have some partner um, from this super theory, super partners we call them, and they're all totally unstable. They all collapse in, a f so we never see them. They're around today, except for the lightest one, which is stable in this other sector of matter of the universe. And that, we say, my colleagues tell me, is the best candidate we have for dark matter because not only is it predicted by the most fundamental theory we have at the beginning of the universe, this theory of supersymmetry, um, but um, also it turns out to give you roughly the right amount to actually explain the dark matter. So it's a very nice coincidence, and so that encourages one to try to look for it. So how on earth can you look for this particle, which by definition is almost impossible to see, okay? Um, so we have a name. To start with, we give it a name, okay? So we, the name we give it is Weakly Interacting uh, Massive Particle, or WIMP for short. Okay? And so our first thought is this, that these WIMPs, which are the particles of dark matter, um, are passing, you know, they, they interact, they're passing through us. Through our bodies, there are millions every second that are, you know... Um, and we, we don't know it. They don't do anything. They don't cause any radioactivity or anything. Okay. But they do, every now and then, very rarely interact. Very, very rarely. Okay. And so how on earth can you try to, to, to cope with that? Well, you devise experiments, okay, that are designed to look for very, very rare events, dark matter collisions with your detector. You have to go to a highly shielded environment because cosmic rays, which bombard the Earth from space, can give you very similar signals to a dark matter particle hitting something, which rarely gives a glow. But every now and then they will interact, they will scatter very, very weakly, but if I have enough detector there, I'll get a rare flash of light from one of these scatterings and maybe I can see something. And you look for, for effects on, in your detector. It might be scintillation of some crystal or, or a bit of heat that's given by this dark matter particle or maybe it can ionize some material. So these are different techniques we use. Okay, so what do we do? Where do we go to do these experiments? Okay, so this is um, uh, the first criterion is you have to go very, very deep underground. So um, this is a region... Um, in, um, in Italy, um, in, um, 
an area called Grand Sasso, Grand Sasso um, in, the, in, 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 the, um, in a mountain range in the north of Italy. And there's a, uh, there's a railway, uh, there's a road tunnel that goes under that mountain um, uh, with a thousand kilometers, um, uh, sorry, a thousand, a kilometer of rock or more above it, okay? So you're shielded by all this rock. And in this tunnel, uh, they've excavated a large um, uh, laboratories to try to study dark matter. Um, and so in these laboratories, one has now installed these massive um, detectors, um, which are now shielded from cosmic rays to look for dark matter. So um, I'm going to show you examples of some of these um, in a moment. Um, the bottom line is that we have not found the dark matter yet, except there is one experiment that's been running for, um, for nearly 15 years now that does has claimed to be a that's claimed to see something a signal. So let me tell you how that works because if it's if it were right, it's amazing. It probably isn't, but the, so this is um, what this experiment does, led by Rita Bernabe in, in University of Rome. Um, and so imagine um, you know as the Earth goes around the Sun, so there's this dark matter out here. And because we're, we're moving, the sun is moving around the galaxy, okay, it's like you see a wind of dark matter crossing you because of our motion relative to, you know, this dark matter in the halo around us. And this wind of dark matter means that because you occasionally get some scatterings of the dark matter in your detector material, which in this case turns out to be sodium iodide crystals, um, you expect to see a slight um, change over the course of the year as you go into the wind or out of the wind. Okay. There should be a slight maximum, slight minimum. It's a modulation of ordered a few percent. And they claim, so every year that goes by in June, they should see a, a maximum um, in December, a minimum. And so you can see the error bars were huge at the beginning. These are uncertainties of experiment. But over the recent, more recent years, as the experiment got more precise, you can see this, they're seeing this up and down, which they claim is proof of this wind of dark matter, therefore evidence for the dark matter. They're, they're picking out this very, very weak signal by looking for the modulation up and down, of course, of this wind. So that's their, that, that was their idea. Okay? And, um, and this was like a red flag because um, many people were skeptical of this result because um, they had some sort of proprietary approach to the experiment. They never released the raw data. And so many experiments around the world realized this was the prime target for them, and they began the chase to try to confirm them or, or reject them. And so here's one experiment. Um, this is in the Black Hills of South Dakota in, in a gold mine, former gold mine, uh, stopped operation, one mile underground now, okay? Um, one um, sets up an experiment, okay, full of, in this case, um, liquid xenon, okay? It's a heavy material. The idea is you think your dark matter particle might be a heavy particle, and so you get optimal scattering if the mass of the particle matches the mass of your detector particle. And so this experiment, led by this guy, um, uh, you can see uh, the, the, the cavity the, the, where they set it up. And they've managed to set um, upper, these are upper limits. This re represents limits on the cross-section. And in this inset, you can see where the, the Rome experiment was, and their limits are now much lower, suggesting that the Rome experiment just, for some reason, just, um, and I'll give you some thoughts why that might be in a second, was not finding dark matter, but something else. And it's not just their experiment. Here's another one. Um, <coughs> which is um, under construction, op just beginning to operate now in the Grand Sasso lab, the same place that I showed you where they measured the modulation. And that's under this 1.4 kilometers of rock um, in, inside this freeway. And so they also have established their own de detector. And likewise, they're not finding any dark matter either. And again, this is an interesting way to show it. This is where the, the original experiment would be, and they're way, way below this in their, in their limits. Okay, so this has become a major activity around the world. Um, look at this. Um, so these are all experiments in mines or under mountains all over the place. Um, we have Japan, I'll show you more of that in a moment. Um, Grand Sasso, which I showed you in, in England. Um, Bowlby in Yorkshire, we have our own national experiments up there. Um, in Canada, um, uh, in the US, uh, there are a couple and so on. Um, and even at the South Pole, there's a new one being constructed deep under the ice. So some of these are very deep indeed. The deepest one is the Chinese experiment, which is um, 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 
goes down some two and a half kilometers. So the depth is important because the deeper you are, the more shielded you are from false signals that might give you some contamination. Over the course of the year, you worry that the rock does change you know, its radioactive emissions very, very weak, very, very slightly. And so that could be the seasonal variation could be due to something in the rock as opposed that was reported before or something. So the deeper you go, the safer you are from... from, from. So here is a little close-up on the Chinese experiment. Um, and they're using another technique, using germanium. Um, and they're under, under this mountain again. A, a freeway goes through it. They, they've built this big lab, and they, and they basically are celebrating here the, the, when the tunnel was, uh, was opened a few years ago. And they've recently installed, again, a huge, um, a huge detector with liquid xenon. And so the aim is now to, um, to go on and build bigger and bigger detectors, okay? And... Um, uh, these are one-ton detectors we have now, and the aim will be eventually to build them up to 100 tons in the future. So there's almost um, to try to definitively either find dark matter or reject it. It's got to be there somewhere, we think, and so the bigger the detector, you, you hope. Um, okay, um, so that's the brute force way, you might say. We want to actually get a bit of dark matter in our, in our hands, as it were, by seeing it in our detector. Um, okay, so there is another way... Um, and that is um, to um, look in a, an atom-smashing machine, okay? And the idea is you smash two protons together at great speed, and eventually you might produce a particle of dark matter, because this is how it began in the early universe. Dark matter particles were produced naturally then, and now at the end, we, and today in the accelerator, you can't get up to high enough energy, but that does mean very, very rarely there's a small chance you'll make something. So where do we go to try to make dark matter? So this is what... We, the place that we go to. This is the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. This is a tunnel 27 kilometers in diameter under the ground. And you are, and they, one sends a beam of protons at very, very high energy uh, one way and then another beam the other way. And they collide together in areas where you put masses of detectors to look for light flashes to, because particles do, when they collide, give you a spray of high-energy X-rays and other things, which you can see with various detectors, and you look for um, traces of something really, really unusual, okay, which might be a clue as to what the dark matter is. So basically, um, the way that works is, is that in some high-energy collision, you, you um, create whole lots of known particles, but energy is conserved, right? We know fundamentally for every particle that goes one way, there's another that goes some other way, and the energy must balance out. But if, for example, you see a beam of particles coming off one side and nothing on the other to match it, you say, aha, that might be dark matter because something is coming off that's carrying the energy, but we can't see it. So that's the sort of thing we, we try to look for in these, uh, in these accelerators. So let me take you now in towards... So this is the tunnel, um, 27 kilometres long, uh, with this... Um, uh, with, with this um, enormous tube in which you're sending these very high-energy particles. Um, this is a close-up. This is a, a person back there, so you can see it's uh, um, off one of these tunnels. And then um, at different places around this tube, you have an enormous area where you can look for these light flashes. So this is um, when they were constructing this. This, is the, um, this was taken before they closed off the tunnel. So this is a huge lab. Imagine the complexity of all the cabling and all of this. All of these are light detectors, which are going to be looking for flashes of light. Um, and this is a close-up of um, getting into this. Okay. Okay. And so these are two two major detectors at the large um, the large hadron collider in in, um, in in Geneva. Okay. Okay. So um, they made a major discovery a couple of years ago, which got into the headlines. Um, they, their primary goal was not to look for dark matter. It's one of their goals, but their primary goal was to look for the missing bit from the standard model of particle physics, which we call the Higgs, the Higgs boson. Okay? Um, uh, discovered and by Peter Higgs, among others, who, was, who got the Nobel Prize for that. Uh, Peter Higgs from Glasgow, okay. Um, anyway, so here is the discovery um, by these two detectors of, of this. So these are various events that they see and they, and they look for, um, for signals um, that these curved lines are events. They, they, they photograph basically with their detectors and they look for, um, for, for things spraying off from the collision. And so you have enormous amounts of debris and now um, you know, one has discovered that the Higgs particle, that's great, and now the, the, the next step is to try to see if there's something invisible occurring um, uh, that would 
be a, your most direct way you could produce the dark matter. So they haven't found it yet. But um, there's enormous hope. There's a lot of excitement. Um, they had to turn off, they're, they're running now, they had to turn off this experiment um, over Christmas because it takes so much electricity to run that it would be one-third the power to run the city of Geneva. So they can't afford it, basically. So they, they closed down for three months. They're just beginning to reopen. And there are, you know, there are curious signals that are coming out. Everyone in the particle community is holding their breath, waiting to see what happens. Um, if, if the tantalizing signals get reinforced or not, uh, we'll know in, in probably in six months. So, there's, you know, so who knows? They, they may or may not be on the verge of discovery. We have no idea. But um, it's an exciting time in particle physics because of this amazing experiment. Okay, um, so let me um, take you on to one more step in this. And, um, and this now is using astronomy to look for dark matter. And so every now and then, um, the dark matter particles out there around us hit each other. And when they hit each other, the, the theory says they have this curious property, they should self-annihilate, self-destruct. And when they self-destruct, these are particles that are much more massive than, than protons, um, they will produce tiny flashes of light. Um, and not just um, and the light will be gamma rays, but also maybe neutrinos, very difficult particles to see, but fundamental particles, very, very light, um, but can be detected, and, and, and positive electrons. They're, again, very rare normally in space. So to run you through um, some of these experiments, again, which are giving tantalizing hints but no signal whatsoever, um, let's look at one detector, okay? So this is um, the sun. Um, as seen um, in x-rays. So the sun is actually a collector of dark matter. As the sun goes around the galaxy, dark matter particles fall into it. And, um, so, uh, and those dark matter particles, when they hit each other, they collect in the center of the sun, they give you these neutrinos, which are ghost-like particles with very high energy. And those ghost-like particles of high energy can um, um, occasionally get to the Earth. So imagine this weird stuff going on in the middle of the sun, which theory says must happen. They hit the earth, then in the earth, they will be trapped in the inside of the earth, and there they will produce other particles which are unstable and can give flashes of light. And so we now have experiments looking for these light flashes. And so one experiment is at the South Pole and consists of sending um, strings of phototubes, drilling in the ice with hot, very hot water, steam basically, um, and down to enormous depths um, and um, looking for flashes of light that come from some random direction. And because they, 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 were, they come from different parts of the Earth, they have different delay times, you use triangulation to figure out where they come from. And so that's one experiment at the South Pole. Another one... Can use ice because it's transparent, you can see light flashes. Another one uses water. And again, in the water, um, this is in the, in the Mediterranean off the coast of Toulon, you have to go very deep down to the seabed. The, the, these lines are laid by mini submarines. And again, you're looking over a kilometer or so strings of these phototubes for light flashes coming from down below from these weird particles from the sun hitting the earth and giving you light flashes. So that's all um, rather uh, remarkable. Okay, um, but nothing has been seen yet, but it's experiments that are going on. Okay, um, so um, I mentioned light. I talked about gamma rays, maybe. I'll come back again in a second. I, that was neutrinos. What about these weird things called positrons, positive electrons? They're very, very rare in space. So here's an experiment that was set up a few years ago, very recently, actually, three years ago, on the space station. Um, so this is the International Space Station uh, orbiting the Earth, okay? And on it, we have a cosmic ray detector called AMSO2, and it is designed to look for dark matter, for these really high-energy particles, positive electrons, that are produced when dark matter particles annihilate. And you expect them in the cosmic rays, but the amazing thing that's been found by this experiment is that here is the cosmic ray contribution. But when they look at the positrons, um, th these come along with the electrons as part of the cosmic ray debris, but they find at high energy this increasing amount. Okay, so here's another way to look at it. So what you expect from cosmic rays is the positrons should just keep on going down. You run out, okay? But in fact, they find a new component, and they have millions and millions of events. So this is a mystery, and um, one of the theories is this, this might be the dark matter, but uh, that's not the only theory. Um, another theory is that it 
that's, these positrons are produced by astrophysical sources, um, which are known to produce positrons, and it could be just that um, coming in at very high energy. We just don't know for sure. Okay, um, so um, that's uh, the, another mystery. Um, let's just move on now to the final thing, which are the gamma rays. And the, this is a, a simulation of the galaxy forming from, from dark matter only. And what you should notice is this is, a, this is our dark halo. So this is one of the amazing things we've learned from doing simulations, that all the dark stuff around us is not some giant amorphous blob, but full of these clumps of dark matter. And because there are these clumps of dark matter and a huge concentration in the middle, there's a chance that it's dense enough where these annihilations of dark matter particles occur for some of the gamma rays to escape into space and glow. And so we have a telescope that's been looking for this, um, again, for a few years. Um, um, it's been in space looking for other stuff too. Um, it's, so it's orbiting the Earth. It's a gamma-ray telescope, and it's produced the following map. Okay. Um, and so this is a map of the gamma-ray sky. And hiding inside this map, and the, these are sources of gamma rays. This is diffuse emission from the Milky Way. But hiding inside, especially where the dark matter concentrates, uh, we think there might be an invisible glow of dark matter. Okay, and this, again, got very exciting a few years ago. Um, I'll just show you one evidence of this glow. So this is a, a, a microwave map of the sky um, made, made by a, an early satellite. Okay, and so behind, and this is all dust, this is the Milky Way. Behind the dust, one saw this mysterious glow, okay, which could have been due to dark matter lighting up. Okay, but since then we've discovered the following, that what's going on in the... And this is the, the whole story of how hard it is to find dark matter. Um, so we've since found that, you know, there probably was an enormous explosion a long time ago, and there's this huge glowing gamma rays found by the Fermi satellite, so it's not dark matter at all. Okay, so let me try to... Um, that's a shame. Um, you know, hopes come and go. It was excitement for a while, but now it's gone away. Um, another great laboratory for dark matter are these. These are the faintest possible galaxies that we know about. Just patches of light, which you can barely see, and we believe they're full of dark matter. We've looked at them in detail with these satellites. We've found nothing at all. Um, we're now um, building many futuristic experiments for these things. Um, so um, uh, these are... Arrays of detectors in Utah. This one's in Namibia. Um, uh, th this one is in space. This is a, a Chinese satellite just launched in December. Underground things. All of these designed to carry us forward on the dark matter push. Um, and um, and so, what about in the future? Um, where are we going to go? Again, uh, we're going to build. Um, just recently approved in in. Uh, Finished, to be finished in three years' time, a huge array of telescopes designed to look for flashes of gamma rays in the sky, one in the Atacama Desert, one in La Palma, north and south. Um, and then um, here we have um, uh, amazing telescopes being designed. This one was just launched in December by the Chinese. This one is being planned by the Russians, all to look for gamma rays. Um, and then finally we have our neutrino telescopes. I showed you these two already, and here is the most incredible one of all, um, which is being built and being upgraded. So here we have some 60,000 tons of highly purified water, and you have technicians on a little raft over here going around. All these are phototubes, again, looking for these tiny, tiny light flashes that are manifestations of, of, of originally from dark matter. Um, who produce neutrinos that get trapped in these detectors uh, by producing these, these other particles on the way through the Earth. Okay, and they're going to upgrade this um, in, in the next uh, years, few years, to a million tons of water, and that'll be in 10 years' time. So this is a Japanese experiment called Hyperkamiokandi, in, inside a mine, at the bottom of a mine. Okay, so to summarize, um, dark matter's here to stay. Um, we don't know what it is. Many, many experiments worldwide. In a decade, we'd better find it or else we'll need to change our theory. So, thank you. <laughs>